Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. Malheur County has had the highest rate of child poverty in Oregon for more than a decade. It's the subject of a new five-part series in the Malheur Enterprise. Student journalists from the University of Southern California focused on the struggles young people are facing with mental health, housing, education, and more. I talked earlier to two of those journalists, Shane Dimaponit and Christina Scarbel, our juniors at USC. I started by asking Christina why it is that Malheur County leads the state in child poverty. Malheur is um, the poorest county in the state. Um, it has about a 21% uh, poverty rate, like a general poverty rate, which is a lot higher than the national average. Um, just the way that it's placed um, in Eastern Oregon, um, it's mostly agricultural. Um, people don't really go to Malheur County to start businesses is what we've heard. Um, people who are looking to start up ventures, um, to start up you know, a coffee shop, they'll go over the border to Boise because as we've heard, it's easier to get business licenses um, and it just it seems more profitable that way. And so there's little influx of new businesses. Um, you know, people don't necessarily aren't necessarily attracted to living in Malheur County. Um, and it's just had a pretty low level of development in terms of new housing development um, for a, quite a long time. And so it's just a pattern of um, low economic development um, and a lack of investment opportunities, a lack of incentivization for new businesses that has just led to poverty. <laughs> How did you yeah. define child poverty in particular? We defined it as um, children that grow up with limited access to basic necessities like food, uh, stable and affordable housing, um, you know, the ability to obtain a meaningful education, to show up to school on time and be present. Um, and so kids who grow up without that um, are considered to be in child poverty. Yeah, and it's like, it's nice that you ask us like, what is the definition of child poverty is because even like from state to state, the definition of child poverty is very different. And that's why we wanted to create this framework that was much broader, that focused more on the qualitative aspect of child poverty, like not having housing, not enough, having enough food, not having access to a good education. And as for the state, for Oregon, for example, you might be considered uh, low income if, for example, you're on SNAP or if you receive uh, those EBT benefits, you would then be low income. And it's just, yeah, we just wanted to focus more on the qualitative aspect of it when we came to the definition. Shane, um, one of the things you focused on um, in one of your articles is housing. Can you mm. describe a meeting that you sat in on between the homeless liaison for the school district, the Ontario School District, and one of the students she serves, a, a boy who y you called Manuel? Yes. Yeah. We use the name Manuel because uh, one, he's a minor. Two, we just want to like keep him protected because, you know, if you search up his real name and then he's applying to jobs, boom, you see that first thing. But yeah, uh, Mary Ann Amaraz, she's a homeless liaison in the Terry School District. She's great. She works with uh, 
several children who are described legally homeless under the McKinney-Vento Act. And Manuel, like, let me explain, like, that meeting is she's been working with him since uh, for the past few years, but she first met him when she wasn't even a liaison yet. She was in middle school. And she helps out kids with things like getting like groceries, getting uh, applying for housing. She gets clothes for them. And it's just even though it says homeless liaison, you think, oh, yeah, she's responsible only for uh, housing. She's responsible for so much more than that. She's there to help uh, families, to help kids improve their quality of life. And Manuel is like it's it's a very heartwarming story because they're not related, but they love each other. In the meeting that I described at the beginning, it was one of their uh, weekly meetings every week. As a liaison, she like meets her students every week to ask them, hey, what are your needs? Uh, are there any issues coming up? Like a check-in with them. And at the end of the, one of that meetings, I asked uh, Manuel, so what does Marianne mean to you? And then he just laughed and he's like, oh gosh. And said, well, I love her. And then Marianne laughed and she said, I love you too. And it's just, I don't know, it was heartwarming. (laughs) (laughs) That's the positive side. There's also the the harsh reality of just the number of students uh, that this one homeless liaison, Marianne Almaraz, is seeing. And then then the question of, of how much she can do for them. What does she do? Okay, so for one example is if you've ever seen a housing application, it is thick, it is long, it is difficult to fill out. And so, for example, in the past year, she worked with 107 children across the Ontario school district. And then out of those 107 children, like you mentioned, what can she do? Well, she can help them apply. But out of those 107 children, only 16 got housing. So she can help these families fill out these applications. But at the end of the day... There's only so much that individuals can do if, one, rent is high, two, there's not enough housing, and even three, when you're applying for housing, it's even difficult to get through the process in the very first place. People don't know who to go to. You mentioned that Manuel is considered homeless. I I should note that he is living with his older sisters, despite the fact that under a federal designation, he is officially considered homeless. It does make me wonder how visible in in various ways child poverty is in Malheur County, or the flip side, how how invisible it can be. Yeah, there's something that Christina could talk about too, but starting off like answering is um We've met several like childcare experts, people like Mary Ann, people who study this issue, and they say, yes, these numbers are high, but we are not able to count all these children because you have people, for example, for the homelessness issue, you have people who go in and out of housing. In the case of Manuel, he's considered homeless because, one, he doesn't have a stable uh, housing situation. He doesn't live with his parents. We have another kid. He just graduated from high school and he gave his permission to use his name. He's 18. His name is Lucas McManus. He's also considered legally homeless. Why? Because he doesn't have housing because he had to leave his uh, parental home. And then he was working a job. He was trying to figure out, gosh, where do I need to live? And that's why, again, coming back to the, our child poverty definition, it's kind of hard to be like, okay, here's our strict cutoff income for to be considered 
poor, to be considered in poverty. And that's why we focus on the qualitative aspect of poverty. Christina, you focused, among other things, on youth mental health for one of your articles. What kinds of issues are young people dealing with? Youth have a lot of unmet mental health needs, and that percentage of kids who aren't getting therapy when they should be is a lot higher among kids who are low income because they face additional barriers to accessing appointments, to you know even getting to an appointment, to starting out with a care facility. There are just so many things that kids um, who come from you know difficult upbringings who um, don't have very many resources um, or who aren't getting enough support, they just have such a hard time even entering into the system of, yes, I need to get help um, and I need to be at a certain place at a certain time um, where somebody will help me. That's just, in a lot of cases, it seems impossible for kids. Um, there's also a couple of issues um, that are specific to Malheur County that I found um, in my, you know, mental health investigation. One of those is stigma about the contracted mental health provider, um, which is LifeWays. And so I just heard from a lot of parents um, and kids who are discouraged from even seeking help because this provider they know it as some place where you get court-ordered therapy or where, you know, your uncle was told to go um, because he has, you know, a substance use disorder. It's not a place that you choose to go to. Um, and so families and kids um, are basically restricted um, mentally from even seeking that kind of help. Um, and these kids... Um, especially with the effect of COVID, um, are facing a lot of mental health issues. Um, that includes depression, anxiety. Um, it also can manifest in suicide ideation. Um, I found that suicide attempts and reports of suicide ideation at schools in Nahir County notably was notably higher um, this past school year than in previous years. And yeah, it was affected a lot by, you know, kids being home a lot, um, unsupervised, maybe, you know, out of touch with friends. And these kinds of mental health issues come up a lot more with kids who, for example, aren't getting the food that they need, don't have a steady place to live. Um, maybe they don't have a steady caregiver um, or maybe they're, you know, bullied at school um, because of differences between their family and other kids' families. And so, kids, especially low-income kids, are very overwhelmed. Um, they take in the stress that they feel at home and they aren't finding, you know, easy enough ways to deal with that. And I found that Malheur County providers are incredibly also overwhelmed um, and are short-staffed. They want to help, but they just don't have the capacity to. I heard from one counselor that they were seeing patients about once every three weeks, and that didn't matter how much the patient needed it. It was just they physically couldn't get somebody in 
more often than that because they didn't have enough people working. I'm talking right now with Christina Scarble and Shane Dimaponit. They are both juniors at the University of Southern California, and they're part of a team of USC students who worked on a series of articles about youth poverty as summer reporters for the Malheur Enterprise. Shane, school has come up in a variety of ways right now, but we haven't yet really talked about how all of this broadly, how child poverty is affecting kids' experiences of school, is affecting their education. What did you hear? Well, for example, if we even look at it on a national scale, which applies to Mallory County, the CDC says children who experience homelessness, kids like Manuel, kids who live in these poverty hotspots, which are poverty hotspots to explain our places where poverty rates are 20% or more and where Manuel lives. It's in Ontario. And then there are areas there that are experiencing poverty rates of 20% or more. These children are experiencing homelessness in these areas, are sick at twice the rate of children who have homes. They go hungry twice as often as children who have homes. And they have learning disabilities. And they have, as Christina mentioned, they have more emotional and behavioral problems. And with just, for example, let's take Lucas McManus. He was considered legally homeless. He worked with Mary Ann. He explained his difficulties with school because he said, well, one, I'm thinking about school. But on the other part, I'm also thinking, oh, gosh, where am I going to live? We have Manuel, who was living in, again, not a very stable housing situation and not a very, he's considered poor he has taken a break from school because one there was violence in the area and he was caught up in that and he got uh stabbed only a year prior and then after that he had to spend time recovering and when you're dealing with all these different factors when you're worrying where can i go what am i going to eat how exactly are you going to think about school when there are are more pertinent issues that are related to your survival, to your day-to-day life. And it affects a lot of things, much more than school. Christina, at the end of the introductory article, you got into the question of solutions. And I was struck by the sense that there really weren't too many obvious, concrete ideas that came from from people you talked to. The, The general answer was something like, it takes a village. But what does that mean in practice? We found that, you know, we really need state-level support, federal support, and the work that so many, you know, local organizations, mental health treatment centers, what all those good people um, are doing. We need all of those to work in tandem because it feels right now to a lot of people that there are initiatives, there are organizations doing their things and trying to have a positive impact, um, but it's not enough. And when those efforts are splintered, when they're independent of one another, they aren't going to have the impact that they want to have and that they need to have for Malheur County's kids to grow up to be functional adults. And so we found that, you know, a lot of things need to happen. That culture of shame about admitting help that families, you know, should 
be made to feel that they can reach out and ask for somebody like Marianne Almaraz to help them um, figure out a housing situation or to accept help from a food bank or to, you know, seek mental health care if they need it or if their kids need it. Things like the McKinney-Vento Act, state support like that for kids who are homeless or who are part of like transient populations who have trouble finding housing. Um, There just need to be more resources put into meaningful legislators like that. That hasn't really happened in the past, or at least not at the level where it needs to be. And then, of course, there needs to be more staffing. And that's an issue across the country, of course. And it's felt very much so in Malheur County. Um, I talked to somebody who runs a mental health center, um, and a health, like a health care center in uh, Treasure Valley. And they told me that, you know, during COVID, they had a lot of an easier time getting counselors from other states uh, to come work and help out when Malheur County had a dire need. Well, those COVID time measures are lifted, and now it's once again harder for somebody who is, say, certified to be a mental health counselor in Idaho or in Texas to come and serve in Oregon. It's it's a lot harder now, but that need is still there. It didn't go anywhere. And once again, um, symptoms of poverty, like drug addictions, crime, you know, absenteeism, missing education, those symptoms also need to be tackled in their own right. Um, but you know, it all stems from poverty. You know, there just there needs to be a more cohesive effort um, on all fronts, really, to try to address that. Shane, before we go, you are both student journalists at the beginning of your careers. I'm curious what it was like for you to work on a project of this magnitude and importance. For me, it was it was very personal. Uh, I grew up in Yonkers, New York. I grew up on the southwest side of Yonkers. And it was very jarring for me to go to Malheur County, which is very different, not urban whatsoever, but then to see the same issues that my own community was experiencing back home in Yonkers, back home in New York. And for me, it was very personal because when I got there, I was able to meet these people who are describing the same issues that my friends went through, that I've known people who I love dearly were going through. And then to see these strangers going through the same thing, I was like, oh gosh, what can be done? And having the opportunity to go into Mahir County with the help of Les Zeitz, amazing journalist, and to really explore this issue and find some causes and to actually cause some real change in the county, it felt good. It showed that like this phrase that we have is journalism with an impact and yes there's journalism with an impact we saw that it got some people moving there's more talks about it and i learned a lot <laughs> shane and christina thanks very much thank you shane dimaponit and christina scarble are juniors at the university of southern california they are part of the team of usc students who worked on a series of articles about youth poverty as summer reporters for the malheur enterprise think out loud and opb's critical reporting from all across the northwest happen only with the support of our members do your part now and join in as a sustainer at opb.org pod